This text we're looking at tonight, it's a very interesting text. I don't know if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark chapter 13, but it, it's not an understatement to say that it might be one of the most um, confusing, challenging texts that we have in the Newer Testament about the Gospel, uh, about what Jesus said and what he's going to do. And so in one sense, it's really exciting, but the disciples, when they heard this, they certainly would have thought, what on earth are you saying? Like, what are you talking about? Now, we know the rest of the story. We know what happens in Mark 15, which we'll talk about. We know what happens in the book of Acts. We read about it in our call to worship. We know what happens in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. But this is a text that is apocalyptic. It is about the second coming. And so to try to interpret it, um, it, it can be kind of uh, challenging and difficult even. I don't know if you've seen this technology, but there's technology now that allows people who are deaf or who cannot speak to sign when they're in a video conference. And actually the algorithm can pick it up and totally write the caption below so that people who can't understand sign language can understand. And what Jesus is doing here is he is saying, I need you to understand this. I need you to know this. And the only way you're going to understand it is if I tell you in this way. And so he is revealing to us a great hope, a foundational Christian doctrine about the second coming. So Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. Hear the word of the Lord. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall away from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as, it, as, soon as its twigs get tender... And, it, and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you hear Jesus' words, and it is hard to not think about the concept of, like, what is next? Like, what comes next? You know, we have our graduates. Um, they're thinking about what comes next next year. And, um, but I just take that concept of next and think about it not just, like, two moments from now because we, we just got to next, right, from when I started. Like, it immediately follows. But drag that out further. Like, what comes next in one year? What comes next in five years? What comes next in ten years? What's next for you? What about 50 years or 100 years? Like, what is next? That is precisely what Jesus is, is talking about right here. What comes next? Now, people have been trying to figure out what comes next for as long as people have been around. And I was reading in the Encyclopedia Britannica, just it was online, and they were talking about end-of-days prophecies. The top 10 end-of-days prophecies in the, in the, in the, uh, in the last 2,000 years, I'm just going to read to you a couple of them to think about some of this stuff. One was about the prophet hen of Leeds. Yeah, a chicken. 
1806, a domesticated hen in Leeds, England, appeared to lay eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. Great numbers of people reportedly visited the hen and began to despair of the coming judgment day. It was soon discovered, however, that the eggs were not, in fact, prophetic messages, but the work of their owner, who had been writing on the eggs in corrosive ink and then putting them back where they came from. And then when they had their little eggs, they were like, oh, my goodness, it says Christ is coming. It's a farce. It's not true. Or this, a religious leader by the name of William Miller in 1831 said that the end of the world was coming in 1843. Well, that day came, and it left. 100,000 people followed him, and so he said, you know what, actually, it's 1844. And here's one of the quotes from one of the people who followed him. I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I lay prostrate for two days without pain, sick with disappointment. Like people had been making promises or prophecies or talking about what comes next, and over and over again, they've missed the mark. Or what about this, Um, Halley's Comet. You know, in 1910, the comet was really close to Earth, and people were really concerned about it. And so the entire world was concerned about Earth passing through Halley's Comet tail and then what would happen to us. And so you know what became one of the most popular commodities in 1910? Bottled air. I don't know why they thought that would help, but they thought that would be a really helpful thing to have, and so they bought the air. Well, I mean, I, you know, Halley's Comet's come by, and nothing happened in 1910. Nothing's happened since. People have been wanting to know, okay, what, what could bring the end? I remember when the pandemic started, you probably do too, how bad's it going to get? Like, what's going to happen? What comes next? All of these prophecies have something in common. One is they claim to have certain knowledge. Like, they claim to have something you can trust. The other thing that's consistent with all these prophecies is they all failed. They thought they were accurate. They were 100% off. Jesus brings us something here that offers both certain knowledge and assurance that what he's saying is true and it is real. As difficult as it might be to understand, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Like, what is Jesus talking about? And what he's really telling the disciples is a couple things. One is what's immediately going to happen in a short while when he dies on the cross. But also, he's telling them about the temple that's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And he's telling them about the future, about what's going to happen when the Son of Man returns. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so kind of three ideas I want us to think about tonight. One is, is this, is this fanaticism, like is it fanatical to think about the second coming of Christ as a core Christian doctrine that's meant to shape our lives? Should we be thinking about that? Is it fanaticism? The second thing is, how certain can we be it's going to happen? And the third is, what difference does it make in our lives today? And so first to this idea of is this sort of religious extremism, is this sort of fanatical to believe that the second coming is really going to happen? You know, um, when people talk about the first coming of Jesus, they're fine with it, right? Christmas is so fun. We love Christmas. God visited earth. But what about this second coming? that Jesus is going to return again to us. In Mark chapter 13, verses 3 to 8, we read this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Here it is again in the first century. The disciples who have been following Jesus are like, What's next and how can we know it's going to happen? 
What will be the sign that all this is about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning beginnings of birth pains. What should we be thinking about when we hear Jesus' words right here? Part of what we should be thinking about is that there's something that's going to happen next, and we're not exactly sure what it's going to be, right? In one sense, we don't exactly know what it's going to be like when Jesus descends from the clouds, and yet we do know what it's going to be like because Jesus is going to descend from the clouds. The idea of what's next can provoke a lot of anxiety, and actually it would were it not for the fact that Jesus tells us here that his people are going to be caught up with him. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So Jesus is saying something's coming next. It's a big deal. It's I'm going to descend from the clouds, but here's what you need to know. You are going to be with me. You're going to be part of this. I'm not just leaving you to the side. The second coming of Christ is is really core to the Christian faith. We read the Nicene Creed, but you know, the Apostles' Creed, it says that he ascended in heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. There are like 318, something like that, New Testament texts that speak about the second coming. Every single book in the New Testament at some level pushes us to think about the reality that Christ is going to return. He's going to come back for his people. He's going to descend from the clouds. He's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth. Be ready for it. In fact, Jesus says here, be ready, be on guard, be awake, stay awake. We are meant to have a future awareness that Jesus is going to return. I think C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, every Christian should look into the clouds once a day and think, is this the day? Like, I wonder if this is the day where God's going to unfold the clouds and all that stuff you've been worrying about three weeks from now or six weeks from now, or whatever it is, all of a sudden, everything is recalibrated to the reality that the king of heaven and earth, who came as a child, who spoke these words to disciples, his disciples, died on the cross and rose again, has come again. It's not fanaticism. It's actually meant to calibrate our hearts at a core level, to, to give light to the rest of reality going on around us. It says, whatever's happening, Jesus one day will return. Now, we know this is true in the world. When you look around at our world, there's a lot of things that are not as they're supposed to be, right? There's a lot of things that take place that we wish didn't happen. There's, there's injustices that are committed, maybe even against you or against people you love. And you think, who's ever going to make that right? Jesus is coming back. He's going to make all things new. He's going to judge the living and the dead. It's a complicated passage, but it's actually being apocalyptic. It's meant to kind of evoke in us this sense of understanding and right alongside it in fullness, mystery. How can you really understand and get your head around the fact that Jesus Christ came at all? And how much more can we get our heads around the reality that one day, along with his angels, he's going to descend and he's going to gather up all his people and we're going to be with him, as Jesus tells us, forever. You know, in, in this passage, Jesus, as I, submit, as I mentioned earlier, is addressing a few things at once. He's talking about what's immediately going to happen to him. He's talking about the reality of the temple. Um, 
falling apart and being destroyed. And he's talking about the future. Because remember in Mark chapter 13, verse 30, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Who is he talking about? Well, generations typically 40 years, right? 70 AD, the temple falls. And um, what archaeologists have discovered recently, um, and kind of near the temple, is the quarry from where the rocks would have been drawn to build the temple. And the temple was like the central aspect of the spirituality and the faith of the Jewish people. It was a big deal. And some of the rocks they've discovered and uncovered that would have been put in the temple are 26 feet long. So just try to get your head around a 26-foot long rock that's one of many that's building the temple. And Jesus is saying, one day that's going to fall apart. One day that's going to be destroyed. One day that's going to be leveled. In that moment, remember what I've said. Things will be shaken. Things will be destroyed. But I am coming back. I'm going to make all things new. All right. So thinking about this, this concept of being present with who Jesus is, thinking about this idea of the the second coming. It, it comes off a little bit like fanaticism. It is absolutely not. Jesus himself tells us, I'm going to die, but what am I going to do? I'm going to rise again. And one of the things we say when we celebrate communion every week is not just that Jesus died, not just that he rose again, but that one day he is going to return to gather his people. The reality of Jesus coming back is meant to calibrate our joys and our sorrows. It's meant to help us understand the beauty of what God's given us today, but that it's just a foretaste of what one day we're going to fully experience. It's meant to give us a vision for renewed things and life-giving things and nourished things. You know, Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things to life. That's what he does. And the second coming is like the exclamation point that he, in fact, is going to do that. Secondly, can we be certain about his coming? You know, the big question of, is Jesus going to return? How do we answer that? Again, verse 32 in chapter 13. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now listen, I grew up in Texas, and we did a lot of talk about end times growing up here in Texas. And people would try to figure out when, you know, when Jesus is going to return exactly. And there's books written and there's all sorts of like discussions and theology things you can look into to figure out and pinpoint when is Jesus coming. Do you hear Jesus' words? Not even the angels in heaven know, nor the Son, but only the Father. This, this one verse right here can save you a ton of time and speculation right here. No one knows. Even Jesus in his, in his humanity at this point did not know exactly when he would be sent back for his second coming. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be on guard. We're supposed to be watching. We're supposed to be waiting. We're supposed to live lives of anticipation that he's going to return. One of the things about this resurrection that Jesus tells us is that he's going to gather those who have gone before us, those who have died. You know, maybe you know people whose hope has been in Jesus and they've died. Um, my kids have had friends who have passed away. Uh, I've had people in my life that I care deeply about who have gone on. The Christian hope the Christian promise that Jesus gives us is that one day we will be restored. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. You know, what's being taught here is that at the time of Christ's return, whenever that is, 
that all those who have gone before us, whose trust is in Jesus, they will be raised up, that we will be gathered with them, that we will be glorified, and these two groups will be eternally secure in Jesus' kingdom and his presence. And so what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples before they head into a very, very dark hour is that life requires for you to have the power of the resurrection right there to calibrate off of. It requires it. Because the only thing that pushes up against even death is what I am saying to you now, that one day I will return. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31 says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Assurance to all. Part of what's beautiful that God gives us through his spirit is this assurance personally of the resurrection. Like we each have this promise, if our hope is in Christ, that this is ours. Each of us in this room at one point face death. But we face little deaths all the time. Struggles in relationships, challenges at school, things going on in our marriage. Like we face things that require the power of the resurrection. And what Jesus is calling us to consider is, is that even in the face of that, this is our promise. So, is it certain Jesus will come back? It's as certain as his resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was meant to be the securing of a promise for us that we can look to and say, all of these prophecies in the Older Testament... Jesus is born, and he was coming as a Messiah. He's coming as a Savior. He's coming as the Redeemer. And then, if you could believe it, Jesus himself dies. Now, for the disciples, and Jesus is telling them about this, the temple's one day going to fall. The thing you think that must stand is going to die, but there's going to be resurrection. There's going to be a future. And it's certain, because I've told you it is, and because of the things I've done as we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and because of the resurrection. Now, how we kind of incorporate this in our lives. One implication of the reality of the second coming, one implication of the reality of the resurrection is that it teaches us to have a greater love for one another. Here's what I mean by that. James Montgomery Boyce said this, If we are expecting the Lord's return, that conviction ought to alter our concern for social issues. At the height of the crisis in the U.S. in the 1960s, two signs hung on a wall of a restaurant in Decatur, Georgia. The first sign was biblical. It read, Jesus is coming again. The second sign directly below it said, we reserve the right to refuse the service to anybody. The signs implied that the owner of the restaurant, who apparently was looking for the return of Jesus, might refuse him service when he came. And because racial or other forms of discrimination were incongruous in light of Christ's coming, if we're motivated by prejudice and contemplating of sin, tearing down or criticizing other people, wasting our gifts, or in any other way failing to live as Christ's faithful disciples, then the return of Jesus has not made its proper impression on our thinking. Do you see what he's saying there? If you really understand Jesus is coming back, if you really understand that he's bringing life to dead things, if you have really experienced that and put your faith in Jesus, it's going to transform how you view the value of people. It's going to transform how you view the, the approach you have to people. It's going to help you to understand that even in the most darkest of moments, the resurrection is true, the second coming is true, and so it gives us power, even in those tough spaces, to be able to love as God has loved us. Have you so taken in the reality of God's love for you and the mystery of the fact that Jesus is coming back that it actually shapes how you think about treating other people? God's grace is meant to saturate us in such a way that it even hits us there.
1 Thessalonians 4 says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now this week alone, this, this coming week, I have two friends who are mourning the death of people that they love very, very much. And I'm going to the services this week. And they're believers, and the people who have died are believers. And so we gather to do two things. We gather to celebrate the life of that person because God gave them that, that life. But we also gather to mourn because we're not with them anymore. But we're able to mourn, as Paul says here, as those who know that one day we're going to be restored. See, this is the power of relationships and friendships for those whose trust is in Jesus. Even death separating us from those that we love, even that is at best a temporary moment because the resurrection is true, because the second coming is true. We can even attend funerals and, and mourn the loss of those that we love and at the same time celebrate the fact that not only are they in a much better place and without pain, but we're going to be restored to them eternally. That's the beauty of what Jesus is offering here. So one implication of really taking in the reality of the second coming is it transforms how you view other people. You know, I've only been at Grace for just under a year. We have, for those of you that I've just met, we're beginning a relationship that extends into eternity. You know, people that you've loved and cared about in the past that you haven't seen in a while, that relationship's gonna be restored. Jesus wants us to have this assurance that he is going to make all things new. He's going to bring life to those who have lost, lost it, and he's going to bring his people together once and for all. So that's one implication. A second implication of it is this, is that by understanding the second coming and understanding the resurrection, it actually gives us power to forgive. There's power to forgive others through believing in the second coming because Jesus makes things new. I don't know if you've ever, I've had some relationships where there's been some, some hurts and some pains. Have you ever thought in a relationship there's just no way it can be restored? Jesus brings life to things that are dead. That's what he does. He brings renewal. And the way that he does it is through forgiveness. As you begin to bask in the forgiveness that God has given you, you actually live in light and express the reality of the resurrection towards others by forgiving them when they don't deserve it. While we were yet Christ's enemies, Christ forgave us. Or what about this? Whenever we judge somebody, everybody at some level struggles with assessing the actions of another person in a way that's judgmental. And what's the problem with that? Well, one of the problems is, is that we can't even stand being judged on our own grounds. You know, just think about the standards you set for your life. How are you doing with just the standards you set up for yourself? Imagine you... Um, having to write out just a list of the things you expect of yourself and how you've measured up to it. You know, how, if that's true of just our standards, how much more would it be true of God's standards for us? Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, imagine that each of us had an invisible tape recorder that only turned on and recorded what we said when we used phrases that included admonitions like, you should do this, or people are wrong when they do this, or this is what is true, or this is what is false. What if, when we died, God said, I'm not going to judge you on the basis of my standard, but only on your standard. This tape recorder tells me what you believe to be right and true, and I will judge you only on that basis. You know, even there we couldn't stand. Part of the beauty of what Jesus is saying here is that I have been judged for you. Now let me connect the dots for you a little bit here with Mark 13 and Mark 15. Mark 13, verse 24, 
Jesus says, and he's prophesying, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, if you turn over to Mark 15, this is at the death of Jesus. This is on the cross. We read these words. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see the connection? What Jesus is saying here is that I have been judged for you. Darkness has fallen. The sun was darkened, as we read in Mark 15. It was dark until 3 o'clock. Jesus is making a prophecy that, that he's going to go through for our sakes. And the result of him doing that? Truly I tell you, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. One day I will gather my people. I'll send my angels. I'll gather the elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens because of what I've done for you. Now in Mark 15, if you keep reading, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is so significant. The Holy of Holies behind the curtain was meant to represent God's presence with his people. But the curtain was necessary to keep them from being destroyed by his holiness. And what happens when Jesus, when the sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give its light, when the heavens are shaken, and Jesus dies and breathes his last, what happens? The curtain is torn from top to bottom. God takes the barrier that separates us from him from top to bottom, removes the curtain, says the curtain's no longer necessary. Jesus has been judged. Your sins are now forgiven. You can now be in my presence. And he establishes this relationship, this covenant promise that you and I get to cling to that gives us hope beyond hope. You know, as you think about in your own life what's next, as you think about maybe the next month or year or whatever it is, pull it even closer and ask yourself, am I living as if the resurrection, the promise of the second coming is true in the immediate next things in my life? Like in my relationships. You know, am I loving people as Christ has loved me? The only place we find power to love others as God has loved us is by experiencing it ourselves. And Jesus does this fantastic thing in warning us, listen, watch for my approach. Live in light of my approach. That story at the end, I won't read the whole thing here. But Jesus says, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, tells the one at the door to keep watch. He says, keep watch. You have a calling. For you high school students who are graduating, God has a calling upon your life to live in light of the resurrection, to live in light of the second coming, to live in light of the fact that Jesus actually really truly died for us and is changing the world and is changing our hearts. He invites you into that. You know, my prayer for us as we like make our way towards July 11th, as we, you know, we have this this anticipation as a group. We're so grateful to the Woods Edge for hosting us, but we really want to be back in our own space. We get to ask a question about our church. Like, what's next for our church? And last week, if you remember that flash flood, the flash flood came, and our playground area filled up with a little bit of water, and some water came inside, and I went up there to check it out and try to dry some up, and Diana was there, and we were all looking at it, trying to deal with it. And um, I've gone back up there a couple more times just to check on it. And one time, as I'm going in there looking at this, like, reminder of what happened on February 17th, I turn around, and our entire stage has all fresh wood on it. You know, I took a picture of it. I was like, okay, there's a next for us as a church. 
God is working in our church even now to prepare it for us so we can get back together again and worship at 8989 Woodlands Parkway because he's not finished with us. He intends for us as a church to live in anticipation of him doing work among us. Because Christ will return, we get to live in light of that today. Even as we celebrate the supper here in a few moments, I would encourage you, ask yourself that question. Am I living like I'm actually waiting for Jesus to come back? Is it affecting how I treat people? Is it affecting the forgiveness I'm willing to offer? Is it affecting the way in which I'm willing to serve one another? Is it affecting how I'm thinking about the role of the church in my life? Like, y'all, Jesus could come back in August. That's a very real possibility. He tells us to be on guard, to watch, to consider our callings, and to live in light of his promises. Let me pray for us as we approach the table together. Lord Jesus, we consider this incredible passage where we're reminded that one day you will return, that your angels will descend, that you will catch up your people from every corner of the earth, and that we will be with you forever. And it's hard for our minds to wrap around that reality. And yet, you're calling us to be like those servants you have left, to be actively seeking your will and your purpose, and to be on guard and to watch for your presence. Because as we do, we live lives of future awareness. The reality of what you're going to do shapes how we think today. We find hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. We celebrate joys because they're a shadow of what you're going to do. And we would pray that by your spirit, you would move in us so that we can live as if the reality of your second coming is actually true, Lord. Would you do that through your spirit in us today? We ask it in Christ's name, amen.